0: Well, good morning. Happy Father's Day. Day. Welcome to the gathering of the church. We believe that scripture is clear, that the church is not something that you go to. It's not a building. It's not a place. It's not a service. Rather, it's the people. It's the people of God. People who have been redeemed by God the Father through the work of Jesus, making us sons and daughters, adopting us into a new family, and giving us a new dad given us the best dad. And so as we think about Father's Day this, this morning, to remember that no matter how good or how bad um, your dad was, um, we, now have, um, we now have the ability to celebrate the perfect father. The perfect father who always does what's good, what's right, and what's perfect. Who loves you and accepts you, not based on your behavior or what you can do or what you can't do, but based on your need. And that he's been pursuing you and me since the very beginning of time. And he desires to mold us back into his image so that we would look like him again. And so this morning we're here as his kids, as his church to celebrate the best dad. To celebrate the one who actually has the right to wear. The shirt that says number one dad. To have the mug and drink out of the coffee out of that. And so as you think about your dad this morning, good or bad, uh, make sure that you spend some time today thinking about who he is. Um, and what God has done for you, and celebrate him this morning. So I'm going to pray for us, and then uh, we want to jump back into the book of 1 Timothy. Uh, Father, we thank you that um, that you are a good dad, and that you loved us so much that you sent your son to die for us, so that we could be part of your family. Father, we thank you that we get to celebrate you today. Pray as we... Uh, go into your word this morning that you would speak to us, that you would remind us of your goodness, of your care, and that you would call us into a deeper love and faith in you. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've been working our way through the book of 1 Timothy, and we're in the middle of chapter 5 today. Um, And God, through Paul, goes back into the discussion of elders. So we kind of broke out of that for a little bit, then he goes back into elders today. Really the, the elders are the spiritual fathers of, of the family, those who take on the position of, of headship in the church family, um, and he discusses how, as a church, we're to, we're to honor them and we're to, and to respect them and how we're to interact with them. And, and in other ways, in order to really redo do that so that as a church, as is family, we would, we would image God to the world around us and really represent His purity to the world and what He's like. And so I want to pick up reading in chapter 5, verse 17, and we're going to work through this and kind of discuss it together. Um, so verse 17 says this, "...let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the Scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain." And the laborer deserves his wages. So let me stop and talk about these two verses for a few minutes here. Um, what does this double honor mean? Well, the first honor is something that is, is simply just simply respect. As a family, those who, who, who hold their the role of elder deserve great respect. There's someone who we would willingly submit to, someone who we would pay deference to, someone who we'd hold in high regard, someone whose opinion we would listen to and we'd watch their life and their words and we would give great weight to those in our own life. It's what Hebrews 13 is talking about when he when says, respect and obey and honor the leaders. And so this first honor is really that that simply Honor and respect. But verse 17 says there's a double honor. So what's the second honor? The double honor, the second honor here, is actually a financial honor. It's where the the word honorarium comes from. If someone goes and speaks at another church, usually what happens is they get an honorarium. Basically, thanks for speaking, here's some money to honor you for what you've done. That's the double honor. So there's one is respect and the other is finances. And how do we know this? If we look at verse 18, it says this, where the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. So what this means is those who have been freed up by the family to lead the family in this capacity um, are basically the oxes. So currently I'm the ox of this family, if you want to say it that way. And what it's saying is while I'm working, I should get to put my mouth down and get to eat, right? And, And so that you are my laborer, and so hopefully by the grace of God that we're, I'm actually plowing and working in your lives. And and so as an ox, I get to eat while I'm working. So that's what this is talking about. And I know that many of you are actually aware of that. And, and know these verses and we've talked about them before in the past but, and I know many of you are honoring your leaders and, and I want to make sure that I say thank you for that you guys are doing a good job of that we don't want to take that for granted but I do want to make sure as we're covering this in, in this book that we do talk about this subject that you are aware of your responsibility in this area not just for me, but also for others that that God would, would call to, to bring alongside us as we grow, or if God moves you to another place and another church family and another part that you would take care of those leaders as well and in just a month or so, Brad will be joining us as as a co ox up here, if you want to say it that way. Um, You can say that when you see him, hey, welcome, Ox. Um, You know, it's, and I would say it's our responsibility as a family, all of us, to give and to care for those who are leading and to support this church with your giving act of really imaging God's graciousness. And as a reminder that we're really all just stewards of God's stuff. And so I get to talk about this stuff without embarrassment because the gospel calls us to these things. So this is not just something that's some new responsibility or some new obligation that all of a sudden Paul came up with here. This is We actually see this back in the Old Testament where the family of God was called to give first fruits. Offerings were given and they were given to, to care for the needs of the priests. And, other, and another specific type was set aside to meet the needs of the Levites, those guys who actually cared for the tabernacle on the temple. In 1 Corinthians 9, I want to turn over to there, because Paul is making a case for, for Barnabas to actually be supported by the church family that he's leading. And he says this in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 13. Do you not know that those who are employed in a temple service get their food from the temple... And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. So Paul's pointing back to the Old Testament and saying, remember how God set up the care for the priest. And then in verse 14 he says this, In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So those, he's saying this is how it happened in the Old Testament. This is how God set up his family. And God didn't change that. He's continuing to set up his family this way now. Galatians 6 says the same thing and one who is taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. And so hopefully as leaders we're proclaiming the gospel and we're teaching the family and there's a reminder here there's a gospel call that that should be seen in one's life. And this double, this double honor is not just some practical reality, but verse 14 says it's actually a proclamation of the gospel to those around, those both inside the church and those outside of the church. It's the way that we proclaim the good news of Jesus by how we give graciously. In Second Corinthians 9.13, and this comes at the very end of a very familiar passage on giving and how God loves a cheerful giver. In verse 13 it says this, "...by their approval of this service they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contributions to them for all others. And so the service here is actually the giving of an offering that's taken up. And so giving is a submission that comes out of your confession of the gospel. So when we give, there's some type of confession of the gospel. We think about the gospel, who God is and what he's done and who we are in light of that's the gospel that when we believe that our life is based on that so that most I would say most of us here would say we believe the gospel and that's our, that's our confession of the gospel and the, and, the, and the scripture says that something comes out of that there's implications in your life because of that there's a reality of how you believe and what, and what that looks like in your life. So the way that you love people, the way that you care for people, the way that you parent, the way that you, that, you, that you live in a marriage relationship, the way that you use your talents or gifts that God has given you, the way that you steward everything that God has given to you, and a way that you give financially of your money is part of that way that we confess the gospel together. And so what Paul is saying is that giving is one way that you submit your life to the confession of the gospel. Giving, giving is an evidence that you believe the truth of who God is and what he's done in your life and who you are now in light of that. And so how we give graciously is one of the ways that we submit our lives to the confession of the gospel. So as a family, we would have, a, we'd have an obligation to care for people who are actually teaching us the word of God. And so he goes on here in 1 Timothy and he talks about how we are to honor elders by how we, how we bring accusations against them. So verse 19 says this, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. And then he reminds us here in the next verse is really the importance of, in of, a kind of caution to go slowly as we're laying hands and appointing elders in a family. He says this in verse 21, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudice doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in laying on the hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. So I want to go back to verse 19 and 20, and there's two things to look at here. Earlier in the book, we we saw that there is a high calling for the life of an elder, that there's... There's a list of qualifications, and it's very long. And We said that 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 list is not only just for elders, but it's for all of us as the family to aspire to. But these are men who we see this in their life over a long period of time, and we're laying hands on them because we want them to actually lead us and teach us how as a family to live those ways. And so in verse 22, it reminds us that, that that process is something that we want to see a lot of health in. And that we want to see these things imaged for a long period of time. And so we're not going to quickly just see them and then we're going to lay our hands and make someone an elder. An elder is, is someone that, that is not, not just held to a high standard um, That we, when we lay hands on them. But now that we're, when we do that, we're actually going to give them great respect. We're not going to jump to quick conclusions when we think about something that we think we've heard or something that we think about them. There's a call here to be quick to be careful not to quickly accuse those who God has placed in leadership. And I want to say that this is really important in our culture, especially because I think this is so prevalent, where we live in a culture that loves to tear down, loves to jump to conclusions, loves to pick apart and analyze people who are in leadership. We see it in the workplace. Anyone that's above us, we want to tear down. We see it in the media. We see it in our government. We see it in our homes, with our spouses, with our children. It is so prevalent in so many areas of our culture. And so this is really important. And we, we have really been pointing the finger at people since the fall. And it has infiltrated so many areas of life. And God is saying, live differently as my family here's a way that you get to image your faith in me by how you love and how you hold up rather than tear down those who i placed in the role of leading in my church. And so God is saying, be mindful of that. What this is saying, it doesn't mean just blind, blindly following leaders but there's this idea that you need to look at our lives as well and you need to call us back to the gospel. We are, we're not perfect people. We know that for sure, that we're not looking for perfection. Only God is perfect. We need people to speak into our lives as well. We need to, we need, we need to, if you don't do that, then you're not actually loving us well and you're not actually respecting us well and you're not actually honoring us well if you don't speak the truth of the gospel into my life or Ryan's life or any other elder that would lead um, when we're going astray. But the accusation here that we're talking about is where multiple witnesses are required, one that's larger, one that, that would imply that an elder is actually unworthy of being followed. These are serious matters that need to be brought before other elders. It's why plurality of elders is so important, that not just so that one person just doesn't become a dictator, but that there's also so that there's protection for other elders. It's a it's a it's a care both for the family and for the for the for the for the elders. God's plan is to make sure that the care is afforded to the church and to those who lead it as well. Now we see here in verse twenty that if an accusation is found true, that the desire would be that they would confess it and that they would begin the steps of walking out repentance in one's life, and where which really gives God glory and gives him and gives an opportunity for grace. But in verse 20, we see kind of there's a sad scenario as well. That often what happens is when people are guilty, they choose not to submit to the gospel in their life. And they choose to continue in sin. And it's very sad. I've seen it walked out many times. And, and, and they're not qualified to lead anywhere anymore. But in their, so when that takes place, their sin needs to be made known to the entire family. And they would be asked to leave the care and support of the family. And it's a very sad scenario when that takes place. And it's a very hard thing when that takes place. But I think there's a second layer here that we see. as That if elders are, are supposed to be the ones who are leading and setting an example in their life and in their speech, and if they have times in their life when things are going to be brought to them, how much more is there reason to believe that conflict is going to arise and things are need to be, going to be brought to the broader family? I want to say that conflict is actually inevitable. Relational conflict is not something that should surprise us as Christians. We don't need to be ashamed that it exists and that that we're involved in it. We should, in, in, in many ways, expect it. This world is broken and fallen, and so conflicts will come. They're unavoidable. And yes, even in the church. And I would say especially in your missional community. The more life that you do with one another, the more conflicts are going to happen. I want to ask a question, as you think about this idea of conflict, how do you usually deal with conflict in your life? Or or maybe what are some ways that people generally deal with conflict in their life? What do you think? Okay, either avoid it or go deal with it right away. Okay, how else? Yeah, fight, flight, or freeze. Okay, good, yeah. Um, um, Okay, yeah, try to deal with it, and if it doesn't go well the first time... See you later. Yeah. They uh, try to reach out to others and speak to them to so give their advice. Okay, yeah. Sometimes we, we look for advice from others and sometimes we try to get other people on our side to go so that we feel better about it. Yeah, good. But I saw another hand over here somewhere. Yeah. Sometimes we tell ourselves it didn't really happen to so know if it didn't just Okay, yeah. We just pretend it didn't happen. We just avoid it or just push it to the side. Yeah. You just stop pursuing that person, you just stop sending texts stop calling. Just so you're not like avoiding them, you just stop check out. Know, yeah. You just kinda step back and be like, Oh, oh I just didn't have time. Like, you know. You're still in relationship but you're not really. You just kinda, just, you just kinda step aside, yeah. I think going back to the Garden of Eden you point to the finger. Yeah, we're we're quick to blame someone else, aren't we? Yeah. Yeah. Like there's a hurt and a pain piece of, like, before you even go to someone else, you're just alone, hurting, you're angry, and confused. Yeah, it confuses us, it wrecks us. Yeah. Yeah, often that takes place, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, we've all kind of talked about like being offended, but like sometimes the comes up. I'm, I'm at fault. will like justify. Mm-hmm. Like, I'll be quick to justify my actions, even if like there's like a little part in it like, I don't know for sure. But like, you know what I mean? Like, I'm, I'm, I'm a really good like uh, personal defender. You know? Yeah, we're we're quick to justify. We may, we may take a tiny little admitted fault, but then we put the rest of it on something else. Yeah. I like yeah. It. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes it goes well when you just talk it out and collaborate and understand each other and you grow deeper together in your relationship and move forward. Yeah, there's good conflict too. Yeah, good. <laughs> the opposite of that, I think, would be retaliation, where it like, mm-hmm. This way, I mean, it's very passive aggressive, right? It's yeah. This way. And you don't talk about it, you don't see view it from a point of view. Yeah, passive aggression is probably one of the largest problems in many of churches today. I think some of the best experiences I've had with conflict have been within my own MC because we've all committed to figuring it out no matter what beforehand and so there'll be a conflict. We'll work it out. It'll be horrible and messy and everyone will feel awful but then hey let's have family dinner tomorrow. Okay. And you just keep going and going and then your relationship actually like Joshua was saying strengthens over time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good. I'm feeling this that I'm choosing yeah yeah it's good it's good I, w- I want to talk about two kind of general ways that like we, we deal with conflict wrongly right one, one I'd say is blast right we, we respond quickly or we, we, we just come and kind of come in and blast and then we walk away feeling justified now, I want to say this especially is a problem that we have now with social media we have the tools to respond so quickly and publicly to anyone without saying anything, without actually being in front of them. At any time, we can say whatever we think we want to say. We can, we can hide behind an email, we can post, we can like something, we can tweet it, we can retweet it. We can, we're, and, we're, and I would say we're, we're delighted to do it. I'd say often we love to respond but i 'd say our compulsion to to respond runs much deeper than than just than just the, the events of our society right now when someone brings something against you, an accusation, a criticism, a rebuke, when they do something, they say something they, they insult you or, or in return, you feel compelled to return fire there 's this burning desire down in your gut that I must respond, I must justify myself I must defend myself, I must make myself known to be right. Unfortunately, when our response comes, it usually comes in the same manner that we think has been dealt to us. If it was anger, we respond in anger. If it's criticism, we respond in criticism. It's, it's whatever it is, it's the case we respond in kind. The reality is that we, that we prove with our response what we actually believe about God. And whose opinion we hold to be most valuable. We, we should find it curious though that as Jesus didn't feel the same need to respond when he was falsely accused. Yet we feel the need to respond in situations. In part because I would say we probably lack the same assurance and same confidence that he did. We know who we are, but we really don't know who we are. Or at least we haven't fully embraced who we are in Christ. And so yet, because of Jesus, we've become the sons and daughters of of the king who's a father who's well pleased with us. And I would say because of that, we have no more need for self-justification. And it's only when the truth of this actually takes deep root in our hearts will we be slow to speak and slower to blast. And it's how we can actually walk out these things in the right manner when we understand those things like you guys were talking about in when, when conflict goes well. I'd say the other one you guys hit on this is, is it often looks like avoiding. Right, we're quick to believe a lie that if we just avoid the conflict or if we just minimize it, then it's going to diminish, diminish over time or eventually it will go away. And I say wisdom speaks another word. Wisdom says, sure, there's going to be uh, offenses that we can forbear or, or personal frustrations we can get over. But interpersonal conflict does not go away. It doesn't go away with inattention. It actually festers, and actually gets deeper, and curdles like milk, whatever you want to say. Um, and the one reason that, that avoiding conflict is such a problem, because it gets worse and it, it, with neglect, but another reason for that is it actually cuts off from the most significant opportunity for grace. The truth is, what God does is He actually steps into conflict And provides grace. We see this all throughout the story of God, where God's people move towards conflict, believing that God will work in the midst of the tension and in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the mess. And as as he do that, he proves his grace, and he's actually the one that's seen as glorious. If you look at the life of Moses, the life of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, we see this with Paul, especially in the first church here, and the conflict over grace versus the law when it comes to circumcision. The apostle Paul didn't avoid it or neglected it. He traveled to Jerusalem to deal with it in person. The life of Paul, you may say, in many ways, becomes a series of one conflict after another, and each one is a catalyst for an ongoing process of grace. He wrote in 1 Philippians 1, he says this, um, The same came conflict that I saw, I had, and now you still have. And conflict, he says here, really served to advance the gospel. A conflict that Paul says advances the gospel and he's still in the midst of. The high points of history are God's people's stories of not fleeting conflict, but actually moving towards it. It's exactly what... Um, Jesus says in Hebrews, uh, in Hebrews 12, says this, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I say the trajectory of Jesus' life was towards need and inevitably towards conflict, not away from it. He set his face, he set his plan to go to Jerusalem, to go to the greatest conflict at the cross. To rescue us from our greatest conflict, really basically eternal separation from God because of our rebellion and because of our sin against himself. And the good news is that now we get to live in that same grace. That you and I have been rescued from conflict and now we get to be little Christs. We get to be little pictures of people who, 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 who learn increasingly to follow his steps and are empowered by his spirit to move towards conflict, to move towards need, to move towards pain, to move towards tension, looking past the imposing awkwardness and difficulty that lies before us to the promise of joy on the other side of opportunity, which is actually grace. But I would say we're never going to walk into that unless we're first reconciled with God. It's never going to happen. Since Genesis 3, we've been walking like our parents. Our parents separated from God. They separated from one another. And because Adam is our father, because he's our head, we're all sinners by nature and by choice. We all sin and we do it and it separates us from God and it separates us from one another. It's why we're in conflict with one another often. And before we can reconcile with one another, we need to reconcile to Christ first. This is what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians. He says, therefore, go be and reconciled to Christ, and then you'll receive the ministry of reconciliation. What's primary is before you think about stepping into conflict to be reconciled to others, is you must go and be reconciled to God. We need to look at our own lives and and, and truly ask, where is my own sin in this? I want to say this is exactly what Matthew says in in 7.5. It says, first take the log out of your own eye, then you'll clearly see the speck in your brother's eye. I'd say we're quick to look at someone else's problem and miss our own because we're so easily offended. We're so easily offended. We need to ask Is this problem I have actually sin in the other person's life? Or is it just something that actually annoys me or that's different than me? As you think about conflicts you have in your life, how many times of the conflict you have with someone is not actually sin in their life? They just annoy you. Or they're different than you. But they're not actually sinning. Maybe it's their personality, maybe it's the way they talk, or the way they think, or the way they act. But they're actually not sinning, they're just different. I want to remind you that differences are not to be disparaged, or to cause conflict. If you have conflict over someone, with someone, because they're different than you, or you're annoyed at them, and they're not sinning, then the reality is, most likely you're the one that's actually sinning. Really, you're living in pride. You want them to be like you and do what you would do. Be exactly like you. And I say, honestly, that makes you the standard. Do you want to say it that way? It makes you God. I don't know about you, but I'm a pretty poor God. And my guess is, so are you. If that's the case in your life, you need to confess that before God. God. You need to, to say that, you, that I'm really one, the one that wants to be in control, and you asked him to give us grace to walk with people who are different than you. I think another question to ask yourself is is, Are you after your own good, or are you after the good of others in conflict? Are you after your own good, or are you after the good of someone else in conflict? See, this is vital to put the other person above yourself. Otherwise, you'll never take on the role of a servant, is how Jesus steps into conflict. The truth of the gospel is that when we step into conflict, um, rather than being bullheaded or pugnacious, our gospel thickened skin frees us to lean in with kindness and patience and gentleness. It's what we see as the call for elders. Like we talked about a few weeks ago, and I mentioned this morning, it's also the call for all of us to aspire to, that we would take on the heart of a servant, that we'd take on the posture of the Lord's servant, like Second Timothy 2 says, that we wouldn't be quarrelsome, that we would, we would be kind to everyone, that we'd be able to teach, patient, enduring evil, and correcting one's opponents with Gentleness. See, it's only then that conflict will become an opportunity for a triumph of grace. Which, can I say, is the goal of conflict? That grace would be seen and grace would be extended. And that Jesus would be made much of. And that as we confess to one another, his gracious gift would get bigger and bigger in our minds and in our hearts. I want to ask you is that how you enter conflict in your life? Is that how you deal with people that are different than you? Is that how you deal with your spouse or your children or your co-workers or those in your missional community or others in, your, in this church or your neighbors or whoever that may be that God brings across the path of your life? Is that how you think about it? An opportunity to see grace extended so that Jesus would be made much of. And I say the bad news is that in ourselves we're unable to address conflict this way in in any way possible. There's no way that you and I can do it with intentionality and with kindness. But the good news of the Holy Spirit is that the same Holy Spirit that led and empowered Jesus to the greatest conflict of all time is the same Holy Spirit that lives inside and breathes inside of His family and inside of His children and empowers you and I to boldly and humbly walk into whatever conflict lays before us knowing that God has already reconciled us and now empowers us to be ministers of reconciliation as evidence of the grace that He's placed in our lives. And I want to invite you today to walk in that grace. To begin looking at your own life. To admit your own sin that's keeping you from being restored with someone else. Or maybe causing you to devalue them. Or to view you, them in a poor light. Or, or maybe to, to see them with disdain. To confess that before God, knowing that He's actually the most offended party. And He willingly forgives and offers you grace. And then humbly, we get to confess those things that we are in conflict with others about. Even if they don't know you're actually in conflict with them. I think oftentimes, when we run and avoid, people don't even know that they've offended you. And we're harboring things against them. And oftentimes, we need to go and humbly confess those things to people. And we do this with an understanding that whether or not they forgive you doesn't matter. Their forgiveness of you is not dependent on your value or how you're going to value them or how you're going to hold them in relationship after that. If we're reconciled with God, the most offended party, and He's forgiven you, then it allows us to continually pursue others we're in conflict with even if they don't respond to you with grace. Romans 12.18 says, So far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And I say as a family, we get to live differently. We get to image the gospel and we get to image grace that we've received in how we honor and how we respect one another. How we step into hard things in life. We get to do that by how we honor and respect Leaders. We get to do that by how we serve others, knowing that, that sometimes that other person may still be in pride. We have to put our pride behind us and humbly walk into those things to serve someone else in, as a way of serving their needs. And I want to encourage us to do this as a family, that in the power of the Holy Spirit to walk this way in all of our relationships, because it's a great picture of what Jesus has done for us. And it's an amazing picture that we get to demonstrate and get the image of our dad. Not to just to one another, but also to the city around us. What a great way to walk and image and look like our dad. Oftentimes, we have many things that we look like our dad in physically. And even how we, how we, how we think and how we grow based on if you spent much time with your dad. There's many ways that I look in the mirror and I'm like, oh man, I look like my dad now. Um, That's something my dad would say. Can I say, that's what we get to do now with God our Father. And we get to image Him that way in the world around us. What a great opportunity for us to be like our dad by how we honor and respect and care and restore one another quickly. Our Father, thank you that um, we get to look at these things in your word today and that you, you teach us and that you call us. Lord, I pray that your spirit would give us great power to walk in grace with one another, to humbly admit our own sin, to not look at someone's differences or, or someone's um, the way they think or the way they talk as sin, but that we would admit our sin ourselves. But I pray that we would not disparage one another, that we would humbly serve one another, and that we would care for each other the way you care for us. Father, thank you that we get to walk in grace today. pray that you would remind us of that often, and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.